high point of our service today will follow the message when we come to the table of the Lord. So even now, let's begin to turn our minds there and place our hearts there. Let's pray. These words from Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by the power of His Word. After He had provided forgiveness for our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. In this quiet moment, just invite Jesus to speak to you fresh today. Our text today is math or Matthew Proverbs 18:21. Would you read it aloud with me? The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Last week we talked about the Proverbs being God's voice calling out to us for wisdom. Wisdom is the word for skill, and God wants to give us skill for handling the complex realities of life, and arguably, there's nothing more complex in life than speech, words, talking. In fact, in the Proverbs, wisdom is the number one subject. The tongue is the number two most frequently mentioned subject of the Proverbs. The tongue has the power of life and death. What do you think? Is that overstated? Ancient wisdom, rhetorical flourish, life and death. Now, I think we'd be okay if it said mistakes are in the power of the tongue because we make mistakes with our tongue all the time. Just read the newspaper every day. Columbia School of Journalism has collected some of the most interesting headlines uh, of the past few years. Red tape holds up bridges, new bridges. Police begin campaign to run down jaywalkers. Iraqi head seeks arms. This is a good one. Hospitals are sued by seven-foot doctors. Or my favorite, man struck by lightning faces battery charges. Mistakes are in the power of the tongue. And the Bible doesn't deny that followers of Jesus make mistakes with their tongue. I mean, just consider for a moment Peter, who always seemed to have his foot in his mouth. Remember during the transfiguration when the brilliant glory of Jesus busted the planet open, and it was an incredible, glorious situation, and then it's just like that over, and then Peter, feeling that somebody has to say something, says, Jesus, should we put up a tent for you? You know, leave a tender moment alone. I mean, 
we make mistakes with our tongue. But life and death, it is a figure of speech. It's called a merism. A merism is when you plant the outer boundaries, life and death, to emphasize everything in between. And what the poet is trying to say here is that the way you talk affects every part of your life. Now that's a pretty powerful assertion, especially when you consider what words are. I mean, they're audio symbols. They're puffs of air that vibrate the inner ear. On a page, there are like curves and slashes and dashes. How can something so small, a puff of air, affect every part of our lives? I'd like to talk about the power of tongue. And after we learn the power of the tongue, I'd like to talk about how we use our tongues. And after we talk about how we use our tongues, we are going to be thoroughly discouraged. So we need to talk about how to heal our words at the end. Are you with me? Power of the tongue. Here's a theology of words. We are made in the image of God. God lives in a family, the Trinity. So for all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been communicating. And they know the absolute joy of perfect words. They know what it's like to have words come from your inside out so that when people hear them, they know you. They know what it's like to be known. They also know the power of words to come from the outside in when someone affirms you or blesses you or loves you. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit know what it's like to be loved. So with these words from all eternity, they know and they love. They are known and they are loved. But it goes beyond their relationship. And God begins to also use his words when he creates. It's interesting in the Genesis account, it says that God made the word, but the way that he made it is interesting. He spoke everything that is into existence. Spoke. God's speech has performative power. It's a speech act. There are consequences and actions that result when God speaks. Well, we are made in his image, and the same is true of us. We speak and define reality for this world. We too have performative power with our words. Quentin Schultz is a communications professor at Calvin College, and he calls this the symbolic stewardship. And what he means is we all know we're to be stewards with our money. We know we're to be stewards with our time. But what I don't think we often realize or remember is that we're also supposed to be stewards with our words our symbols. We are symbolic stewards. So in the creation account, we see God delegating this symbolic stewardship to Adam when he asked Adam to name the animals. So an animal would be brought to Adam. Adam would know the essence of the thing, and then he would speak a name. Now, to speak a name implies you know the essence of the thing, but to also speak a name, it's powerful, right? Because if you speak a name over it, you control the perception of it. And if you control the perception of it, you can suggest attitude towards it. And if you have the power to suggest attitude towards it, you can also suggest action in its behalf. That's the power 
of words. And do you know who knows this power very well? Do you know who some of the best symbolic stewards of our time are? Advertisers, right? Who showered this morning? Yeah. Oh, some of you raised your hand. Okay. Did you feel good when you showered? Maybe it's because you did not use Irish Spring. Irish Spring has a fresh scent like, I don't know, a spring in Ireland. And you may even get an accent if you use it enough. It's better than Celtic Swamp, that's for sure. Who wants to shower with Celtic Swamp? No, you want Irish Spring because if you can control the perception, you can suggest attitude and actions. How about this one? You're in good hands with Allstate. Not greasy hands, good hands, strong hands, and the best voice on television talking about it. You want your personal security to be in good hands. You control the perception. You suggest attitude and action. How about this one? Any golfers in the house? When you line up on that first tee, you, by the way, you can probably tell that I am not a golfer. Sorry, over there. When you line up in that first tee, what do you want? You want an explosion. You want power. So you need Callaway's Big Bertha. Big Bertha guarantees you, an ex- at least until your backswing starts, uh, uh, an explosion off that. Did you know that Big Bertha was the name of the most popular cannon in World War I? You don't want little Becky. You want Big Bertha when you tee off that first hole. You see, you control perception. You can uh, encourage attitude and suggest action. You who else knows the power of words and symbolic stewardship? Our culture makers, those people who have voice into our culture and influence what we think. So take one of the, the uh, controversial issues of our time. Take the issue of abortion. If you can, con- if you can name it, you can control per- perception and suggest action. So is that the essence of the thing in the womb? Is, is that a baby or is that an unwanted pregnancy? You name it, you control the perception and suggest the action. And how about at the end of life? Is it death with dignity or is it assisted suicide? You name it, you control perception and suggest action. Do you know who else knows the power of symbolic stewardship? Children. Trent Holman Jensen in a communications textbook talk about surveys they've done and research on children. And they've discovered that up until, and this was several years ago, but up until, I think the age is getting lower, but up until uh, a few years, the age of eight, a child, they don't have the, the, the grid or the resources to keep adults properly integrated and keep perspective on adults. And so a child under the age of eight typically thinks their parents have all authority and it's a godlike voice. How I miss those days. <laughs> but a child thinking its parent is all authoritative. Parents, how do you talk to your children? 
What names do you use? How do you address them and, and speak to their behavior, especially when you're angry? Are you symbolic stewards? You are symbolic stewards. The only question is how you're stewarding. Amy Tan's Joy Luck Club, she tells of a girl with an extraordinary gift for chess. She can see the secrets of the chessboard at age eight. She is a national champion with unlimited potential. Her only liability is her mother, who is envious of her daughter's gift and manipulates her daughter to fulfill her own dreams of wealth and power. The mother goads her, and eventually the little girl dares to talk back, and her mother responds with silence. For weeks, Weeks there is silence, the silent treatment. The little girl wilts in her spirit and begs her mother to forgive her. And finally the mother explodes, you are nothing, nothing at all. Years later this little girl writes as a woman, what she said to me was like a curse. This power I had, chess, this belief in what I had been given, and I could actually feel it draining away. All the secrets that I once saw on the board, I couldn't see anymore. All I could see were my mistakes and my weaknesses, and the best part of me disappeared. Some of us in this room this morning are still trying to renew our minds still trying to hear the Father's voice, the one who knows your essence and the one who speaks to you. I know who you are and I love you. I control perception of you and I suggest the action toward you. I know you and love you. Some of us in this room, because our parents were terrible symbolic stewards, are striving to renew our minds. Jesus, may they hear your voice this morning. The tongue holds the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. It. What's it? The power. The power of the tongue. Those who love its power will eat its fruit. These words we speak as symbolic stewards have consequences in our lives. They have consequences in this life. Proverbs chapter 12 gives us a great metaphor that we need to walk out of here with this morning when we think of our words. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The words we use have the power to be swords that we stick into people. Now, you know how a sword works, right? You can stick the sword in, you can pull the sword out, but what you can't pull out is the wound. It stays. These words are powerful. They have consequences. James 3 wants us to be aware of these consequences. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. 
When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. Here's the fray, the claws to hold on to. Sets the whole course of one's life on fire. And is itself set on fire by hell. There are consequences in this life to our chosen speech patterns. And one of the things a follower of Jesus is continually wrestling with is our speech patterns. For instance... You're already making decisions when you speak, when you engage in a conversation. You've made decisions about how honest you're going to be. And we're always working in that tension between honesty and deception. You decide how honest you're going to be or how deceptive you're going to be. A follower of Jesus is always living in the tension. And you decide between how much truth you're going to tell or how you will distort reality. You also get to decide how much of a balance in your words you will have between affirmation and rebuke. You get to choose how much balance you have there. You also get to choose how much compromise you'll have and room you'll leave with your speech patterns for gossip and humor. Specifically humor that makes fun of other people when they're not present. Gossip is talking negatively about another person when they're not present. You choose how much compromise you allow into your speech patterns for gossip and humor. We wrestle with those things because the consequences can set our lives on fire. Not only in this life, But in the next, consider these words from Jesus. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. It's thought that the average American speaks 18,000 words a day. Most men a little less, less, most women a little more. 18, that's not funny. I wasn't trying to be funny. No. (laughs) 18,000 words. And not one of them without mattering. We are called to be symbolic stewards. And we're held accountable to be symbolic Steward. So there's the power. So here's the question. If Waterstone deeply understood the power of words, what would we look like? Well, let me suggest three things from the Proverbs, three visions of what healthy communication looks like. Three, maybe four. Okay, maybe four. First one, if we understand the power of the tongue, we will be honest and healing with our words. 
An honest witness tells the truth, but a false witness tells lies. The soothing tongue is a tree of life. The word soothing could be translated healing, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. So the idea of being honest means that you don't engage deception in conversation because deception distorts reality for the other person. The other person is trying to make their way through life and make wise decisions like you. But if you distort that reality by not being fully honest, you injure this other person and soon over time, trust will be broken, and that's true, then it begins to affect the community. And we've all probably had experiences where we couldn't trust the authorities over us and how hard that is when you lose trust in an authority. So we strive to be honest in our conversations. That means sometimes we're direct, means sometimes we tell the truth even when it hurts, even when it reflects poorly on me or poorly on you, we are honest. We give people the whole picture because they have to make decisions based on reality. We never want to deny a person that right. Yet, at the same time, the healing tongue is a tree of life. We're honest, we're direct, but we always have it in our mind that we're going to frame this in such a way that it's going to be healing. In fact, it's going to be a taste of paradise. Remember that metaphor, the tree of life. Think about this. Our calling to one another with our words is to help another believer become their future glory self now through our words of healing. Let me illustrate how this can work. And I always like to illustrate this in a wedding ceremony. And I craft every wedding message unique to the couple, but there are a few things that I always tell young couples. One of them has to do with words. I say something like this. When two people come together in marriage, they each bring accumulated verdicts of how they view themselves into that relationship. Some of those verdicts have come from the wounding things others have said to us, and we bring those in. Most of them come because of the lies and the shame that we believe about ourselves. And when you get married... God brings someone into your life, your spouse, who has a massive power to reprogram your self-image. How? By their words. How? Because when your spouse says something to you, it rings with authenticity. Why? Because you live together and you know each other intimate. You are known and you are loved more than any other person in your life. They know you and they love you. So when they say something, it rings with power and authenticity. You mean, I love you guys, I love you all, and I like it when you say, good message, Larry, but there's only one opinion of my preaching that counts, and that's Jan's. I really don't care what most of you think. But when Jan says it was a good message, it was a darn good message. She knows me. She knows when I fudged. She knows when I've worked. That brings the authenticity to the message. She knows my heart. And when she says, good job, honey, I'll come back next week. I'll do it again. When she says, (laughs) 
that one needed another few hours. <laughs> oh, that hurts. Yeah, it's been an issue in our marriage. <laughs> no. Do you see what I'm saying? Your spouse has this massive power. So you think about your relationship. How is your symbolic stewardship in your marriage? Do you use words to build your spouse? Here's your responsibility. You are to own the same opinion of your spouse that Jesus has. And every moment of your marriage, remind your spouse of what Jesus thinks of them. You are to own that opinion and share it continually. And that makes huge impact in your marriage. Healing and honest. Second thing that describes people who understand the power of words is that it's to be gentle and strong. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded, and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Gentle, gentle, gentle. What's gentle? Is that to be mamby-pamby or namby-pamby? Is that to be a doormat? Is that to be a wimp? No, because gentle tongue can break a bone. It's a Hebrew expression that literally means you stay there and you, you have it at this discussion until you finally you know, break the, until you wear down the, the resistance and convince them of your point of view. Gentle can be argumentative. Gentle can be pointed. Gentle can even be contradictory. But gentle wins. It breaks a bone. So what is gentle? What is gentle? Well, I think it's best understood in terms of the antonym in verse 1. It's the opposite of harsh. Harsh there is a very clear Hebrew word. It means using words to hurt people. Sword. Inflicting pain. So here's how you know if your speech is gentle. What's motivating it? Do you want to win? Do you want to put a person in their place? Do you want to exact a measure of revenge? What's it motivated? What's behind it? Gentle speech is motivated by love. It's motivated by the interests in behalf of the other person. So here's how you know. Let's say you have to have a very hard conversation and you're going to be gentle. What does that look like? It looks like this. After it's done, the person with whom you've had this hard conversation says, wow, that was really hard for me to hear. But I know you love me. And I know it was hard for you too. Gentle and strong. A person who understands the power of words, thirdly, knows how to make them apt and appropriate. Here are two of the great pictures of the Proverbs. The skill of wisdom. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a ruling rightly given. An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. Apples of gold. That's about timing, the first one. You can have the best things in the world to say. You know, all your golden apples. But what will make them most effective is if you also plan the timing. If you have a backdrop to your golden apples. Put them in a silver setting. A silver setting means you've not only thought through how to have your speech be honest and how to have your speech be gentle, you've also thought through when 
is the best time to have this conversation. Again, you know, in marriage, it's generally not a good plan to have a serious conversation at 11 o'clock at night. Think through timing. Make it apt. But you also, a kiss on the lips. It's the only time in the Bible that phrase is used on the lips. It doesn't mean what we think it means. It doesn't mean romance. Here's what it means from the 4th century B.C. Herodotus. When one man meets another on the road, it is easy to see if the two are equals. For if they are, they kiss each other on the lips without speaking. If the difference in rank is small, the cheek is kissed. If it is great, the humbler bows and does obeisance to the other. Not only To be a good communicator, do you need to think through the best time to have a conversation? You also need to have the contour of the relationship in mind. Is this a close friend or is this a complete stranger? You need to craft the conversation for the context of the relationship. Confrontation usually goes best when it's with someone you know and you have a relationship. There's trust there. If you have to confront someone you don't know well, maybe you need to step back from that and get to know the person a little bit first before you give them your golden apples. Always keep in mind the level of relationship that you have with the person. So all of this is to say, and this is important, brothers and sisters, when it comes to crafting communication, the burden is on the speaker to lovingly craft a conversation for the best benefit of the receiver. The burden is on you as the one who wants to communicate. All right, I said three, maybe four. Here's someone else who knows the power of words. Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. Okay, here's the take home. This is free. Based on the wisdom of the Proverbs, the best thing you could probably do to help your speech is to talk less. Take that with you. Stick it in your pocket. Think it through. If you understand the power of words, you want to minimize your exposure. (laughs) And the way to minimize exposure is to talk less. All right. I don't know about you, but I feel miserable. You know? There's a way that you, this, you could land this plane two ways. The, the one way you could land this plane is to say, you know, and some would do this. Some, okay, so what you need to do is you need to take your words more seriously. And you need to get an accountability partner. And you need to have them evaluate your words once a week. Just give you a report. How have you talked this week? And then you need to stick on your ceiling, you know, a reminder phrase. Think through your words and you evaluate every one of those 18,000 words that you've spoken. We could do that. Actually, there is some wisdom in that. At least this. One of the things I think everyone should have is a friend who knows you well enough to say, 
Larry, I've noticed in some of your humor lately. It's on the edge. Larry, I've noticed that you've been talking about other people in a way that's really not healthy and, and they're not here to defend themselves. I've noticed this in your patterns. Everyone should have such a friend. Do you know how that starts? It starts by you inviting a friend to be that friend. That is wise. But the fact of the matter is, that's not going to solve the problem in and of itself. No, our words need healed. How do we heal our words? Jesus. You say, Larry, you always say that. The answer to everything's Jesus. Yeah, the answer to everything's Jesus. Listen to what he says. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. Remember, he's talking to his pastors here. <laughs> you brood of vipers. <laughs> Everyone needs a friend. Right? How can you who are evil say anything good? Here's the, here's the sentence. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You see, the reason that you speak angry words... It's because your heart's angry. The reason you speak words of gossip is because your heart is insecure. Every mouth problem comes from a heart problem. The source of the words. What's the heart? The heart is the control center of your acting self. The heart is where we go to see what you most hope for and in. The heart's where we go to see what you love most. The heart's where we go to see what you're leaning on for your significance and your security. The heart's where we go to see what really is important to you. You go there, you go to the heart, and you'll understand speech patterns. So let me illustrate something very personal. I am a liar. It's usually not a bold face that's white when it's black kind of lie. It's usually fudge. It's usually you know, just not telling the whole picture or slightly shading the picture. Why? Because I don't want to hurt your feelings. Because I want you to like me. And I will say things that even cause me inconvenience in order to have you like me. I crave human approval. That's what makes my heart go. It is my functional savior. And so I lie. How does my heart get healed? How does your heart get healed? How do our words get healed? Well, you start with the heart. You start with the heart. So the first thing you go, you understand, is that you have to go to the one who knows your heart. You go to Jesus. Jesus it says in John chapter 7 that no one spoke like 
Jesus the way this man does. Jesus knows the power of words and he knows language and he knows that language comes from the heart. So you start with Jesus. He's the word. He's the final word. He is, the revelation called him, the alpha and omega, which means everything in between. He's the whole alphabet. He's the whole dictionary. He's the whole lexicon. He never used language to hurt people in an inappropriate way. He was always honest with his words, timely with his words, always motivated by love. So you go to him first, not just as an example, but also as the one, and even more as the one, who knows where speech comes from, and that's the heart. So how does Jesus get into my heart and start to bring healing to my lying? Here's how. I sit there, you know, week in, week out, I sit here, and I begin to understand, especially on the communion Sundays, that because of my lying, because of my speech patterns, I deserve the silent treatment from God. But instead, Jesus got it. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he got no answer back. Imagine, we've said that the Father and the Son have been in intimate communication from all of eternity. But in this moment, in this moment, the Father turns his back on his own Son and gives him the silent treatment. Why? Because it should have been me. I'm the one who uses words to slash people. I'm the one who shades reality so that I gain human approval. I'm the one who deserved God to have a, turn his back on me. I'm, I don't have the fitness to be in his presence. I deserved the silent treatment, but Jesus took it in my place. And the father turned his back on his own son. And the son went to the cross to forgive my sins. The Son rose from the dead, and the Son now sends His Holy Spirit into every follower of Jesus. And guess what we get? We get a word. Romans chapter 8. We get the Spirit living in us who testifies with our spirit, talking, 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 testifying to our spirit that we are the children of God. Listen. Here's how this works. This is how I stop lying. When I realize, well, let me put it this way, to the degree that I realize that I am a child of God and that fills up my heart is the degree that I don't need to lean upon human approval to fill my heart. To the degree that we realize we are a child of God is the degree that we don't need to use words to slash people and take out our anger. To the degree that this truth and our listening to hear the Spirit pour the love of the Father in us, to, to the degree that we understand we are a child of God is the degree that our speech patterns change. It starts with the heart. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who eat its fruit, those who love it will eat its fruit. But may we understand that the ultimate way to change our speech 
to redeem our words, to be symbolic stewards, is to have the outer love of the Father being poured into our hearts again and again and again. When we realize we are a child of God, our words change. So as we come to the table, in a moment I'll give the words of institution. The servers will come. We will remember Jesus, but I want you to also be listening for another voice this morning. I want you to be listening to the Holy Spirit, reminding you, talking to you, pounded into your heart that the Father loves you. The Father loves you. And when that fills your heart, your words change. May we be loved so that we can love with our words.